This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I think we can start with a lighthearted joke about delving deep into the weeds of the policies discussed last night. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius. With me as usual, my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Um, I'm feeling a little bit punchy after just, just two short days of Republican convention. <laughs> really? Because I'm feeling uh, exhausted and grim. I think that's what punchy is. No, yeah. that's not what punchy means. Okay, well, at any rate. A little bit of both. Punchy is kind of fun. Punchy oh, is like, ah, oh, yeah. making no, some silly jokes. No, punchy is like tired and irritated. Yeah. yeah. I, I would go with that. I'm looking this up as we talk. Okay, so I, I think, you know, I mean, you know, the, the the first night, you know, was dedicated to national security, but but night two, Make America Work Again, uh, really seemed like a like a weeds-friendly, oh, we should say we're recording this Wednesday morning. Um, Tuesday night was uh, supposed to be the night dedicated to jobs and, and the economy, so, you know, was looking forward to, to delving deep into the weeds, as per the name of this podcast of Donald Trump's many ideas to um, uh, boost job creation. But and, then we and ran wages. into a problem, but which then, is a, a lack small, of weeds. It's a small problem. A I, small technicality. Small technicality. Small there technical no issue. I will say I, I watched all of the speeches. They did not contain any policy ideas. And I will say to his credit, Paul Ryan's speech was largely on the subject of how it would be desirable for the campaign to focus on the Republican <laughs> Party's policy ideas, though he didn't state what those ideas were exactly. Um, nobody else really seemed to gesture in that direction. I guess the, the, the one lady at the end, the avocado farmer, I believe she did suggest that uh, restricting imports of avocados from Mexico would be beneficial to her avocado well, farm. Well, let, let me let me say the one speech I think got closest to actually being about a theory of the economy was Don Trump Jr.'s, who focused quite a bit on the – despite the fact that he is the son of the son of a real estate scion and he is like the vice president of the company named after his grandfather – his view was that the problem with the economy is it is insufficiently meritocratic and there's too much crony capitalism happening. Right, yeah. He said that, was he, weird, he said that we needed to restore the social mobility that, that Barack Obama had, had destroyed, although he is, yeah, a third generation <laughs> real estate tycoon of some kind. Um, no, I, I actually should say that. There was a, a notable thing was that if you cast aside everything else that happened in, in the previous 48 hours, Donald Trump Jr. gave – what I have come to expect from the like non wonky kinds of speakers at the convention, which is that he demonstrated a real familiarity with like how Republicans talk about things. He did a little pivot from like his privileged upbringing to why school vouchers are good. You know, it was yep. the kind of thing that we have learned is not actually important to succeed in presidential politics, but that we used to think was important that like if you haven't, if you don't have the record of involvement with Republican Party policymaking, then you need to show that, like, you are listening and can repeat back the kinds of things that, that Republicans like to talk about. In a weird way, it made him seem like the wonky, super substantive guy uh, because nobody else was doing that, including, you know, a couple of incumbent governors, Asa Hutchinson and, and in particular Chris Christie, but also Asa, Asa Hutchinson, it's, it's worth saying, really primarily. Governor of Arkansas. Governor of Arkansas, um, former, um, uh, 
head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. I mean, a, a somewhat obscure but very long resume guy dedicated his speech almost entirely to the idea that Hillary Clinton is a criminal of, of some kind. I mean, he did not talk about what he had done in Arkansas to do something that made some kind of average person's life better. He didn't like make their colleges better or more. I mean, maybe he did, but he, he didn't talk he, about No, that. he's done things like I know his Medicaid background just because that's my, like he's done some kind of interesting things and has some ideas about policy, but they clearly were not on display. Instead, you really have this focus on this arrest Hillary thing, which I did not realize was going to be such a big theme of the RNC. And it's, it's been surprising to see this be such a prominent part of both make America safe again, and then make America work again, are kind of these constant calls to arrest Hillary for things that do not seem um, to be the type of things one would be arrested for, such as negotiating deals with Iran, for example. Um, and, it, and it's kind of subbed in a, in a way for policy We've seen this discussed a lot more than one might expect. Let, going let me into this. Uh, propose a couple directions we can take this that uh, I think will bring us into something approximating a weed. <laughs> so one is that I think there are two reasons that are, are salient, that jobs in the economy were so absent on the GOP's jobs in the economy night. One of them, the, the weeds here reason, is that the economy, it is not great. We have not had the roaring recovery we wish we had had. But it is also not terrible. The economy is growing. Uh, Unemployment, I believe, is 5.4%. It's something in that area. Um, It was actually very notable when Donald Trump introduced Mike Pence, and we'll talk in more detail about Mike Pence later, but when he introduced Mike Pence uh, as his vice president, he talked at some length about how amazing the jobs record in Indiana is. And what was fascinating about that is that Indiana's unemployment rate is precisely the the national average, right? Indiana is at 5.4%. So simultaneously, the GOP is trying to argue that the national economic picture is a dumpster fire, that we need to make America work again, and also that the in, the governor of Indiana, a state with a perfectly average <laughs> labor market, has had such a tremendous record on jobs that, uh, that, that he should be made vice president. So that's one direction I think we should at least discuss a little bit because I think it speaks to some broader challenges for the GOP this year. The, the other thing though, and, and Matt, you wrote about this very eloquently after the Melania Trump plagiarism goat rodeo, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, um, is that this is a very poorly constructed convention. Um, it is clear that Donald Trump has not built a staff uh, that is able to run a convention well. It is clear the people in the Republican Party who know how to run conventions well are not running this convention or are not being, give, being given power to run this convention. The speeches are not vetted across a theme. The speeches are not vetted for original content. There is a lot going on here that I think speaks to Donald Trump's argument that he is a great businessman and a great manager. This is not a convention that is reflecting well on his ability to focus an organization on its stated goals, hire the right staff, hold that staff accountable, and then execute against a plan. And I do think that matters because we have not seen Donald Trump in government before. The only real thing we can see in terms of how he would run something in politics is his campaign and to some degree the convention. And I don't think either one has been has been well run. I think to, to follow up on that, I mean, it's something you may not realize unless you sat through uh, some 
discussions with people who've planned conventions, is that there's a principal agent problem at the convention, right? If you have a speaking slot at the convention, what you want to do is either talk about something that's relevant to like your state politics or something, particularly on the Republican side, that is likely to get you uh, talk radio hosting gigs or like a Fox News show or or sell books or something. Um, If you're the candidate, though, you have like a larger message that you want to put out there. And what you want is the different people who speak at your convention to be bolstering that message. So like being the person who delivers the third best speech of the evening about how Donald Trump understands the role that red tape plays in inhibiting job growth. And as president, he's going to work with businessmen to identify the regulatory barriers to job creation. It's like not great for your personal career, sort of whatever you're doing in in Republican politics. Whereas giving, even if it's only the third best speech about how Hillary Clinton should be locked up and thrown in jail, like that's good. That's definitely what like the core fans are more interested in than like a boring discussion about building permits. But, you know, you you want – if you're Donald Trump, if you're trying to win the election, you want some people to like shore up your weaknesses and, and help you out, deliver a message that can persuade skeptics. Um, and you see Trump's kids have been his best speakers at the convention because in the nature of a – if you have a sort of poorly run environment, uh, you want to put your children in positions of – influence because they can be trusted to have incentives that are really aligned with you. That's why, you know, like in authoritarian political regimes, you often see family relatives of the head of government, like running the intelligence agencies and and stuff like that. So, you know, Tiffany Trump goes up and gives a speech about how Donald Trump is like a nice dad. And Donald Trump Jr. is like, see, we do. We do know what Republicans think about policy. But all the other people were just like running around because Trump does not, has not imposed a coherent plan and I think doesn't even know how to go about doing something like that. So you have, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich is going to speak tonight, I think. And like Newt Newt Gingrich is not like like a team player. You know, Newt Gingrich is about trying to get his whatever new rigmarole going. Um, and I'm sure he'll give like a good speech that people will clap for because Newt Gingrich is good at that kind of thing. But is he like moving the ball forward on, on some kind of Trump agenda? Does does Donald Trump even understand how something like that works? It, it seems to me no. That's why he's like calling into Fox News in the middle of his own convention. The one thing he does know is that on some level, all these other random people up there on the stage, governors of Arkansas and stuff like that, are not really all in on Donald Trump in the way that, you know, his son is or he can be on the telephone. And I think it speaks to something beyond the convention. I think Ezra hinted hinted at this a little bit, but just kind of to nail this more in the head, that it possibly serves as a preview of what a Trump administration looks like, where this is just organizing a four-day convention, where you need speakers, you need people to kind of show up your credentials, you need people, like you said, working with you. You want people to kind of be talking you up, not kind of working on like whatever game they have going on. So then you kind of, a lot of the skills involved in campaigning are giving talks with Donald Trump has clearly shown an ability to really 
get voters, you know, riled up, excited to vote for him. You know, he's mobilized people who haven't been voting. But then you think of this other set of skills. I think, you know, as this is something I think you've written and thought a lot about, especially in your Hillary profile recently, about actually, you know, doing the work of government and like doing the work of running an administration and getting people to do the things you need them to do. And the convention is almost like a small microcosm of that, where you have Four days, you're, you know, trying to really get people riled up and excited for your campaign. The presidency is four years of trying to get people to do the things you want to do to kind of accomplish the policy goals you're looking for. So you don't – and I think this is why kind of circling back to what Matt's been talking about, what he wrote about yesterday, why this Meliana plagiarism moment, you know, matters is that it kind of shows like a lack of – preparedness, a lack of professionalism, of being able to, you know, accomplish the things you'd like to accomplish and kind of taking this type of moment seriously. There's been a lot of back and forth and gossip or reporting in the media about kind of what happened with Melania's speech. Um, Some reports that her speechwriter say she changed it the last minute. All of this stuff, it kind of it kind of brings into question, like Ezra said, some of the management things and how would a Donald Trump manage a White House? How would he get all these people who are kind of on stage doing their thing, um, kind of working towards whatever goals he has as president? Another interesting dimension of this is what does the Republican Party actually care about right now? I mean, one thing that conventions do, uh, and, and they do it officially in the role of setting the party platform, but they do it unofficially in presenting a potentially consistent message across stakeholders and representatives of the party's many different factions is show what a party is about at a given moment in time. Matt, your point about the principal agent problem I think is really very well put. But one thing within there is that in 2012, I think even if you just like let the convention go, if you had had a Donald Trump run convention, I think in 2012 you would have had a lot of Republicans going around focusing naturally on how Barack Obama had destroyed the economy, how the recovery was terrible, how unemployment was much too high, how even the Obama administration's own unemployment projections had said it would be you know, m- much lower at this point, how we were moving towards socialism, how Obamacare is a job killer and on and on and on. It is easy to forget now, but one of Mitt Romney's campaign promises was that by the end of his first term, he would bring unemployment beneath 6%. This was his measure of like what a successful administration would look like. And now unemployment at the end of Barack Obama's <laughs> second term is under 6%. And I think this is a place where you actually see some of the difficulties and tensions and complications in Trumpism. There is a very sharp and continuous effort to frame the appeal of Trump around economic anxiety. And for some people, I'm sure there is a lot of economic anxiety and frustration tied up in Trumpism. There are many people who are supporting Trump who have been left out, who have seen their jobs disappear. You know, it's a big country and a lot of awful things are, are happening in it. But A lot of people supporting Trump have above median incomes. Um, He was not the candidate of the poorest Republicans. And one thing going on here is that the economy is bad, but the economy is not great, but it is improving. And it is at a point where even by many of the Republicans' own measures, it is on on a reasonable path. And so I think that Republicans are really groping for a message right now. And what they have come up with, because 
they don't like Donald Trump, um, party stakeholders. So they can't – their message can't be Donald Trump is great. And it's not that the objective situation of America is so terrible. We're not embroiled in a war like the Iraq war in 2008 that was clearly a disaster. We're not looking at an economy as we were in actually also 2008 but to some degree even in 2012 that is clearly in, in, in the tank. And so they've settled on this negative partisan take on Hillary Clinton that the reason to vote Republicans is that the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee should be in jail. Yeah, but I mean, you know, this is where I think, you know, Trump to me looks a lot better than like a Paul Ryan or or Mitch McConnell because Trump's pitch, you know, I don't think that the problem with the United States of America is that police officers can't shoot black people with sufficient impunity. Um, but Donald Trump does. And like, that's fine. That's a that's a real issue, right? There there really is a dispute in the United States happening right now about whether police officers should be uh, more or less constrained in their ability to, to shoot and kill uh, unarmed African-Americans. Uh, there really is a debate in the United States about whether we should construct a massive deportation force to round up Latinos and, and send them to Mexico. These are real issues in the United States that are live, that are important to a lot of people, and that Donald Trump is putting on the table for specific reasons. Like, it is genuinely true that norms around uh, uh, race and ethnicity and, and gender identity, all that stuff, like, are changing in the United States. And Donald Trump is saying they shouldn't change or they should change back to how they were before in response to real stuff that is really happening, whereas Paul Ryan has this plan that he didn't really um, spell out its content of, but that would drastically alter how um, low-income assistance programs work in, in the United States of America. And he, the purpose of that is to create budgetary headroom to substantially reduce uh, the tax burden on, on high-income uh, Americans. And it's a real policy agenda in a way that is, you know, in many respects more more respectable than, than the Donald Trump policy agenda. But it doesn't have a clear rationale. Like, what is it for? When when this was originally rolled out five or six years ago, it was supposedly like the answer to this economic crisis that, that the United States was in. It was Barack Obama had his way of getting the economy moving again and Paul Ryan had his different way. Um, Paul Ryan's way didn't pass as it happens. They, he and Mitt Romney did not win the 2012 election. Um, and then the economy recovered anyway. So now – they just they just have the same plan for I don't know why you know I they, I mean they like it that's that's why um, but it's it's not in re response to anything that has occurred in the past four years that suddenly Paul Ryan thinks we need work requirements for SNAP and and we need to block grant Medicaid right uh, we talked a, a couple episodes ago about how um, healthcare spending keeps falling below previous projections which you might think would alter like forward right I mean if we used to need to block grant Medicaid because it was going to become hugely unaffordable, but then it actually turned out that spending was lower than it was before. A, a like rational, evidence-responsive person would alter his plan in response to that. But they just kind of cough up the, the same one. Um, whereas 
you know, Trump, I don't like him. I don't think he would be a good president. And I'll, I'll let you in on the secret that I'm not going to be voting for him. But I, but I, I understand. Breaking on the weeds. But I, I, I understand what he's talking about. You know what I mean? Like, I, I see what's going on. And I also totally understand why 15 years ago you didn't have, like, a, a national campaign based around that. Like, a, a lot has changed in America that, that he's responding to. Whereas the sort of official institutional Republican Party just seems to me to have kind of, like, gotten stuck in third gear and they're not in any way recalibrating as as new things happen. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. Well, and one of the things that's hard to think through about this convention, because Trump is obviously a very untraditional candidate, is like, how would this look different if we had a different candidate? I know Dylan Matthews on our staff wrote, I guess you would describe it as Republican fan fiction about it was what, amazing. It, what it would look like if Marco Rubio, for example, were, were running. But one of the things I think through is we'd have this economic recovery happening either way. You'd still have these same ideas kind of held over from Paul Ryan. You'd still have the bud- his budget ideas going on. How much of the lack of policy is due to the the issues kind of Ezra is bringing up at the start that we, you know, we are below 6% unemployment, that things are not looking as disastrous as they might have been four years ago versus, you know, how much of the lack of policy in a night like last night with this make America work again, you know, has to do particularly with the candidate they're running this year. It's kind of, it's a little hard for me to, for me to answer. And it seems like, you know, the theme of make America work again is almost in a way set up to fail a little bit when you have a lot of Americans who are working again. But I don't know if would we have seen a more substantial policy discussion with another nominee or is this like reflecting the fundamental fact that the economy is like benefiting a Democrat going into this election? I I think you're right. I think that's a good counter argument to what I was saying before, that it it is Jeb Bush ran a campaign that had a lot more policy papers around it. And Marco Rubio ran a campaign that had a lot more policy advisors in it. And and Marco Rubio gave some pretty, I thought, actually interesting uh, speeches early on. One thing that I do think is kind of fascinating about this is that in both cases, there was prior to Trump and, and in a way continuing amidst Trump, a strong belief among many in the Republican Party that Republican Party policy had to modernize and change. That There were these sort of factional battles happening over the kinds of policies that were acceptable. So if it had been Ted Cruz, who I don't think was all that involved in that 
fight. He was arguing for a harder line, sort of more confrontational conservative Republican Party, but I don't think it's a great policy wonk. I don't think it would have been a highly policy-heavy convention. But if it had been Rubio or someone, I, I think you're right. It would have been on, – on my interview show, the Ezra Klein Show, which you should all subscribe to this week, I talked to Yuval Levin who uh, sort of was one of the leading lights of the Reformacons and runs National Affairs, which is a big conservative policy journal. And he had been one of these guys who was you know just brought out a book about this actually of fractured America. He was one of these guys like trying to push the uh, approach to a new like a some some kind of semi new policy equilibrium because he believed not just really about Obama he'd been doing this before Obama that Republicans had to change and that they had become like caught in thinking that was too Reagan esque and like they needed to, to to be updating for for this era. And you know, a lot of them are sort of making this same point as saying that if only we had done this, Donald Trump wouldn't have happened. But I do think you're right that a lot of this ends up being reflective of the personal characteristics of the candidate. I think my, my only point is that I think in the absence of a candidate imposing a consistent policy message, I think with a worse economy, Republicans would be defaulting to an economic message when they just kind of go up and do their own speech. Whereas right now, I do think it's interesting they're defaulting to this criminalization of Hillary Clinton message, um, which, which I think is – you never want to get too alarmist about this stuff. But I think this is concerning. I think the degree to which the Republican Party is indulging and feeding and uh, hyping up its basis fantasy that the leader of the opposition party is actually a criminal who should be in jail and the degree to which Chris Christie, who four years ago was embracing Barack Obama around, her, uh, around Hurricane Sandy, is now like running show trials at the, the Republican convention. I think this is a bad direction in politics and I, I think it is a very particularly bad direction at a moment when the Republican Party has, is nominating or has nominated now a candidate with clear, strong man, semi-authoritarian tendencies. I think the mixture of those two things, a mixture of Donald Trump's particular personality and the Republican Party's turn towards a belief that we should put the opposition party leader in jail, this doesn't feel like a good direction for our politics and it feels like a genuinely different direction for our politics. This was not how Mitt Romney's convention worked. But also, you know, some of this is, is I think, just like projection on, on the part of a, a couple of people. Um, it's Donald Trump, not not Hillary Clinton, who uh, come this winter is going to be in a, a federal fraud trial. Um, it's it's Chris Christie is not, it looks like, going to be indicted um, in the Bridgegate stuff and that's because he has successfully gotten, uh, what's his name, Samson? To like take the fall, right? Like yeah, his top guy was indicted. Pr prosecutors were offering him deals, you know, to flip, and like he wouldn't do it. He's not cooperating with with the prosecution, so so Christie is is not going to get indicted. Um, those are the like the the two people who've like led the charge against quote unquote crooked Hillary and against you know she's guilty, she's guilty, she's guilty. It's like literally a man on trial for fraud. Um, and like a guy who is dodging indictment because he found a fall guy. Um, so there's like kind of a – I think a reason that they've like leaned so heavily into this because like now we're going to get like chin stroking. Like we shouldn't criminalize politics instead of hot takes like actually Chris Christie should go to jail. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I th because I, like yeah. now – oh, now I'm a hypocrite, right? <laughs> and so uh, there, there is something – off kilter about this, like like toss her in jail. But but I also think this is like I'm 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 the old man of this crew. And like this is what happened in 
the 90s is that Republicans would like stop thinking about, okay, is there someone in America today who is like unhappy with something in their life? And is there something that we can say we're going to do that will make their life better? And instead talked about how they had to have like more FBI agents investigate Bill Clinton more because the fact that Bill Clinton wasn't in jail yet in a real conspiracy theory way, right? It only proved the conspiracy went deeper, right? So like now, like James Comey is part of the cover up and like, why is he part of the cover up? Like <laughs> nobody knows, right? Like this is... But this is always with, – with any kind of theory like this, right, the, the like the why is always the linchpin of it, right? So the director of the FBI, former assistant attorney general from George W. Bush administration, um, career prosecutor, lifelong Republican, actual donor to John McCain um, – He's sitting on this like great case against Hillary Clinton that would get anyone other than crooked Hillary in jail, but he just just doesn't forward it to the Justice Department like for no reason. Like what 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 do they think is happening exactly? And polls already show that people have the view that Hillary Clinton is a dishonest person, right? So to the extent that that's the point they're trying to make, like the job is done. Right? It's you can you can bank it, and instead they're like they're really pushing on fairly elaborate and weird accounts of of what's what's going on that i find less like disturbing than some of the the chin stroking things stuff that i've seen out there and i i think it's really just like straight up counterproductive. And I think we're going to see when we have like one convention followed by the other that the Democratic convention, I think, will primarily be Democrats talking about in their sort of boring Democrat way, like we're going to do this for this kind of people and this for this kind of people. I'm like, here's our thing if you're a daycare worker and here's if you need daycare and a college loan. And and it's people are going to kind of roll their eyes, but everyone is going to hear like a little like, oh, yeah, that sounds nice. And then the Republicans are like, they're all talking about Hillary Clinton. And, I, and I, who cares? I have different expectations for the DNC. And I guess we'll be able to see how these play out in in a week from now on our next show. But I expect a lot of talk about Trump. And I feel like it speaks to something kind of specific to this election and kind of, you know, why you hear Hillary coming up again and again. You know, maybe it's a done deal that, you know, the idea of crooked Hillary is already cemented. But maybe it's also something that gets people out to vote. We're, you know, watching the election of like the two least popular candidates we've seen run in modern history. And I think that kind of speaks to why, for example, you're saying last night, I, I know our video team, we could put this in show notes, made a video looking at how many times Trump is mentioned versus Hillary. And it's just, you know, really oh, all about video idea. It is, well, <laughs> it's on that, yeah. it's on the website that you edit. What so, website? Vox.com. Oh, interesting. I'm going to go the there news. right now. Yeah. Um, we'll wait till after we're done podcasting. Okay, but fine. I think it speaks to something specific about this election where you have two candidates that are very unpopular that, you know, aren't necessarily, particularly in Trump's case, motivating to their party to get out to vote. So, you know, the thing you can do, you can either motivate people to vote for your candidate or get them to vote because they really hate the other person. And it seems like you're seeing kind of a playing into that into that strategy. And, you know, in that way, it really makes sense to see Clinton be such a focus of the election when you have, you know, last night, one of the things that was a little bit striking was watching, you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, and um, House Speaker Paul Ryan kind of basically talking about, you know, generic candidate, not really talking about Trump, but talking about like the importance of supporting a Republican. And then, you know, all this digging into Hillary, it kind of paints a campaign, it paints a preview of a campaign that's going to focus very much 
on the other candidate when you don't have a candidate who's especially well accepted or liked in your party? I think that's largely true. The one place I would differ on it is that I do think a structural difference in both the campaigns and the convention that the Democrats and Republicans are going to run is Democrats are more or less running an incumbency campaign. Hillary Clinton is running as the third – like Republicans keep saying this and it is true. Hillary Clinton is running as the third term of Barack Obama and one reason she's doing that is Barack Obama is one of the most popular major politicians in America right now. He is not incredibly popular but he's over 50 percent, which has become very rare. It's a strange line. That, I mean I heard it I think three times at, at the convention last night and Obama is you – know, there have been more popular presidents but he's way more popular than Donald Trump. Right. So, and he's way more popular than Hillary Clinton. Right. So one thing that's going to go on is that I think Democrats are going to – you're going to hear a lot of talk about the Obama administration actually and, and Democrats sort of running to continue a record of some success. The, the thing that you might imagine Republicans would do is reach back to their most recent administration run as a continuation of that. But even though George W. Bush's approval ratings have rebounded somewhat, people don't think he did a good job. They don't think he was a good president. And Donald Trump particularly has run against the Bush administration's record, right? Uh, he says he opposed the Iraq war, which he didn't do, but he really hates the Bush family, does not like George W. Bush. George W. Bush is not at his convention. Jeb Bush has not endorsed him. And so I, I think one thing that has created a heavier reliance on negative partisanship, and I agree that Democrats are going to go ham on Donald Trump, but I think that the interesting thing about Republicans is it is only negative partisanship and that's because they do not have a current administration they are defending, a recent administration they are promoting or a candidate with a policy proposal, a policy agenda or vision of his own that has really particularly excited anybody uh, and particularly by the way that is not – a lot of Donald Trump's ideas do not excite other Republicans so they don't want to open up divisions over say the wall whereas I do think Democrats are running – there, Hillary Clinton is running as a continuation of not just Barack Obama's presidency, but Bill Clinton's presidency. And both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama will be at this convention speaking about how their presidencies were awesome and Hillary Clinton's presidency will be awesome. And within the context of that, there's actually they, – they have a lot of just agenda to talk about and stuff that they have a to, – to go back to Matt's principal agent framing, an incentive to, to defend and to promote – and it's just, I think, going to lead to a, a more substantive convention, not to mention they're just people who are more personally interested in talking about policy. One of the weirder things from, from last night was that interspersed with the Republican politicians talking about how Hillary needs to go to jail were like various business figures who Donald Trump has worked with at some point talking about, you know, how Trump's like a great guy to, to do business with. And this is the kind of thing where I think what's not on the stage speaks so much louder. I totally agree. Than what is on the stage. So Donald Trump supposedly <laughs> has a fortune worth $10 billion. He builds the greatest companies. He's created like millions and millions of jobs. And so he has up there to testify on his behalf the head of Ultimate Fighting Championship, the woman who runs his own owned and operated winery – and some guy who does waterproofing in the Bronx. Wait, wait, wait. There's also a soap opera star who grows avocados. Yes, yes, the, the avocados lady. But but she was really there more in her capacity as, as an actress. Um, what you well, did, I think that's debatable. What you did not have was, um, I don't know, like the head of a, another major company saying that 
Trump was like a fierce competitor in the business world, yeah. but he understood some of the same stuff that I and other CEOs of important companies understand, and we're going to go do this thing. There also wasn't like a person who had come up in the ranks of the Trump organization and then left to go found their own company that was awesome, talking about all the things they they learned from Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump literally had a television show whose premise is that he would mentor other aspiring entrepreneurs. None of those people were there to talk about how like being Donald Trump's apprentice is great. There was nothing. Although Omarosa yeah. literally has uh, become yes, will be head his, of African American outreach. outreach. One thing I just want to note on what you're saying: it's also very notable the the business person who's got in a really big time slot, the Thursday time slot, is Peter Thiel, who is um, early investor in Facebook, founder of PayPal, a very interesting, strange guy suing Gawker into oblivion currently. But to my knowledge, not someone who has worked with Donald Trump. He is a business guy who supports Donald Trump, but he's a tech investor and Donald Trump does not run technology companies. And it, it just like it's again a place where, as you say, the 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 absence of someone who is a major American businessman with personal experience of Donald Trump doing something great with him is very notable. And it's it's a contrast to like just one convention ago where it was like you had the guys who founded Staples saying yeah. Mitt Romney right, really yes. helped them get Staples off the ground. And like you're like, what's Staples? Oh, it's a big fucking office. <laughs> People know what's going on. Like, OK, the pro- head of Trump winery thinks her boss is good. It's like, not even like the 25th best Trump business. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, like where are the other New York State real estate tycoons? Like where where are the Tishmans? And, you know, it's... But this kind of speaks to the nature of this convention as well, right? Like in, in typical conventions, you kind of have a headliner each night. As far yes. as I can tell, there was no like... Like, like, was it? Was there someone we consider the headline? Yeah, Ben Carson gave the keynote last night, and he said Hillary Clinton worships <laughs> Lucifer. Like, this is li- well, she like, said Hillary Clinton is a follower of Saul Alinsky, who maybe worships. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I was being don't generous. Don't put words in yeah. Doctor Carson's mouth. All right. Should we but, talk about? Yeah. But it's. Let's I talk just, about let's okay, talk about Pence. another exciting Republican. Not to kill you. Do you want to? Do you want to close? No, this no, out? no. I, I think I think Mike Pence actually just segues into this nicely because it's like there's a bunch of Republican governors of states, like a lot. They have genuinely no shortage 30. of this. They have 30. Yeah. I looked this up recently. 30 Republican if governors. If you want to ask like what has the Republican Party done that's like actually quite impressive and it's become the governor of almost all the states. And run the state legislatures. Like take control uh, of state yeah, government. They are running state government across the board. And there's really no end in sight to this. Um, the one state the Democrats looked like they had a good chance <laughs> of taking control over was Indiana, because I don't actually know why, but Mike Pence is weirdly unpopular. Like the Republican governor of Michigan, popular. Wisconsin, popular. Ohio? Illinois, Ohio, super, super popular. popular. Uh, Illinois, not that popular, but still more popular than his <laughs> adversaries. Um, Massachusetts, through the roof. Maryland, like fucking everywhere you look, there's popular Republican governors. So 
Mike Pence is kind of like the Trump wineries of Republican governors. <laughs> it seems to me like he's, he's not a nobody. I used to think he was going to be the Republican nominee. But it's like, how do you look at this field of governors and come up with the one who's unpopular in his home state, which is a conservative <laughs> state? It's more conservative than these, these other states. Uh, and it's there's just something a little like C-list about the whole operation. <laughs> and that to me is Mike Pence as vice president. Let's talk about. So to be clear, we're taping this Wednesday morning. Mike Pence will speak at the Republican convention uh, Wednesday night. So that is the past for our listeners. It is the future, the future for us. Whoa. So we are not, I know it's pretty <laughs> weird, mind blown. Um, but so Mike Pence will say some things. We will not be able to address those on this podcast um, due to that being in the future. Lock her up. That's <laughs> really spit out his water. I just really um, like how carefully you're explaining just, the concept of time to our listeners. I was up. Uh, I was up late watching the convention. This is what I think punchy means. (laughs) Anyways, what we will talk about, now that I've finished my soliloquy on the concepts of time, is Mike Pence's past. Mike Pence's past. Thank you, Matt. So we're going to talk. all of our past. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in a sense, (laughs) it's a shared space time framework (laughs) that we've all been operating in. Okay. Anyways, um, because I find Mike Pence a very interesting politician policy wise. I have. What's so interesting about him? Well, I've been following his policy career for about six or seven years now, back to the time he was a legislator here in Washington, and I was a you know very new reporter at Politico. And there's really two things like Pence stands out to me on policy wise, where he has been, I, I think, a very defining character in the Republican Party and really shifted how they think about a number of issues. The first is Planned Parenthood. Like this is basically the guy who came up with the idea of defunding Planned Parenthood. He introduced the first Planned Parenthood defunding bill in 2007 when no one was paying attention, kept pushing it, kept pushing it, and then, you know, really made it a key part of what the Republican Party stands for. You know, it was part of potential government shuts down. It's been this theme they revisited again and again and again. And it was really this one legislator when he was a congressman from Indiana, just like beating that drum and really going for it. And kind of, you know, when I talked to him, I did an interview with him about it a number of years ago, and he was basically saying, you know, as long as Planned Parenthood has funding from the government, I am going to be after them. So I think it has been interesting how Mike Pence has really put Planned Parenthood on the radar. There were some fights in the 1980s, 1990s, but, you know, really this current fight we're having, it is because Mike Pence really did not like Planned Parenthood. So that's one fight I've been following that he's involved in. We can talk about that one. Can I interject one very quick thing? It's just notable that one of the places where Donald Trump unusually <laughs> diverges, not necessarily in policy from the Republican Party, but in affect, is that he continuously defends Planned Parenthood's work on behalf of women, right? He says he'd also defund them and other things, but Trump notably at a bunch of debates would stand up and say, Planned Parenthood helps millions of women. I mean, it, it, he picked the guy who hates Planned Parenthood the most when he was a politician in the party, seemed to like Planned Parenthood the most. Yeah, it is a weird, I mean, and it kind of speaks to, you know, as Matt was saying, it, it does, it Seems like from all available reporting, Mike Pence was not Trump's really enthusiastic first choice for vice president. It speaks to some of the reasons why you might see Pence getting this pick. And I think, as you do, you've written about kind of how it undermines kind of the theory of Trumpism is he is someone who can really like has the pro-life credentials, like was very well respected by the pro-life community, like really seen as like a legislator who cares about these issues. And rightly so. Like he has really been an advocate on these and like not willing to back down, but it, it like it's, it kind of like undermines 
Trump's whole theory of government and like Trump's whole theory of how he'll win in government in kind of a bit of a way. Yeah, I totally I, I totally think it does. I mean, you can go down the list of places where Trump has divergence from the Republican Party. Uh, TPP. Mike Pence is a strong supporter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. The Iraq war, which, again, Donald Trump did not actually oppose when it started, but definitely says that he did constantly. Mike Pence is a strong supporter of the Iraq war. And there was a fantastically weird moment on 60 Minutes when Pence and Trump did an interview with Leslie Stahl. And she says to, to, to Trump brings up again his his. His fake non-support, his fake opposition to the Iraq War, and she says, "Well, your 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 running mate supported the Iraq War," and he says, "I don't care," and she says, "Well, you've made this a huge issue with Hillary Clinton," and he says, "Yes," um, and he says, "Yeah, Mike Mike is allowed to make a mistake," and Leslie Stahl says, "Well, is Hillary Clinton allowed to make a mistake?" and Trump just says, "No." <laughs> And Leslie Stahl just says, "Got it," which I thought that merited a follow-up question, but whatever. Um, Iraq War, just very uh, aggressively for the for the Iraq War. Um, Planned Parenthood, as we mentioned, another place where, again, Trump has diverged in a little bit of a vague way is around Social Security and Medicare. For instance, he's been very against raising the Social Security retirement age. Trump has proposed raising the Social Security retirement age. Pence proposed. Pence. I'm sorry. Thank you. Sorry. And uh, and then there's just a broad affect issue where and, and political style issue. Pence's primary talent as a Republican politician is he's good at networking with other Republican Party politicians. He became head of the conservative Republican study committee in the House, became a member of Republican leadership in the House, became a member of the executive board of the Republican Governors Association as a governor. He's very good uh, and and is very well liked by his peers within the Republican Party. He's also a pretty effective fundraiser. He's very connected to the Koch brothers. He has lobby, Washington lobbying firms, raise a lot of money for him. These are all the things Donald Trump is not, says he is not, um, has run against being, has bragged that he he will oppose an office. And so they're just everything about Trumpism, the anti-establishment nature of it, the specific spaces of policy divergence, the ways in which Trump said he would conduct himself differently so that he wouldn't be corrupted by the by the normal modes of politics. Everything about Trumpism is undermined by Pence-ism. Like choosing Mike Pence is Trump just like saying – this stuff was mostly just an act like I'm, you know, maybe I'll or at least trying to signal to Republicans that he will settle down and be a normal Republican politician if he actually makes it into office. Yeah, but I think that what we've seen over the past week between like picking Pence, speeches from Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, Donald Trump's uh, accession to the throne is not so much Trump giving up on, on Trumpism as Republican leaders falling prey to some pretty dangerous wishful thinking, right? Sure. They are letting the fact that Trump picked a perfectly ideologically orthodox vice president with no history of personal ties to Donald Trump. Ezra's written, I think, very eloquently a number of times about the sort of uh, modes of wishful thinking and, and rationalization, right? It would be really bad for Paul Ryan's career, if he were to find himself deciding that what he had to do was say, oh, actually, the Republican nominee for president is like a total joke and I'm not going to endorse him. Right. That would be like a big problem for Paul Ryan. So it would be very useful for Paul Ryan if he could come up with like a good reason 
to believe that Donald Trump will be a good president. And like picking Paul Ryan's old buddy and collaborator, Mike Pence, to be his VP, that counts as a good reason if you want to look at it to be like, you know what, all this Trump shtick, like all this stuff, like it's maybe weird. It's maybe not my style. It's maybe not that wise. But like at the end of the day, when he had to fill a job, he filled it with Mike Pence. And the whole administration is going to be like that. It's going to be fine, right? It's not at all like transition director Chris Christie is going to fill this whole administration with weird Chris Christie uh, cronies like he did in New Jersey who are going to act in like a totally corrupt and lawless manner. Like there's no evidence to support that at all, right? Um, But like is that really true? I mean there's such a long history in the United States from, you know, uh, John Nance Garner and FDR's administration of – The vice presidency being used in this way is this kind of like throwaway sop to healing a factional divide. And then it turns out the vice president has no legal or constitutional authority over anything whatsoever. And to me, that was kind of like, you know, when Trump is sitting next to Mike Pence there and Leslie Stahl is asking about the Iraq war, Trump doesn't say, you know, I sat down. I like I talked to Mike Pence about Iraq. You know, I think that, um, you know, I think his thinking about this issue has changed a bunch over the years as I think it has for a lot of people. And also, I respect some of the reasons that he offered. And, you know, we're really like a team. He was just like, it's fine. He's allowed to make a mistake. <laughs> right? Like, he doesn't he doesn't but, care what Mike Pence thinks. To add one more example of this, uh, in the absolutely bizarre, insane announcement speech, which I could go on for a very long time about and, and, and did on the site. But one of the really interesting moments was while Donald Trump was giving this 28-minute speech about how Donald Trump is great, he kept occasionally like remembering he was supposed to say things about Mike Pence. And so just in the middle of the speech, he says, oh, Mike Pence, I <laughs> – he says, I have to be honest. A uh, big part of the reason I chose Mike is party unity. Right. And <laughs> that is the <laughs> – That is the thing that if you're Paul Ryan, you don't want to hear, (laughs) right? right? Because he's saying not that a big part of the reason I chose Mike is that when I sat down and heard about his conservative policies, I found them very persuasive. It is that like I knew I needed to make Paul Ryan happy, so I gave this one guy a job, right? It it shows how cynical the choice was. One of the things I find interesting about Mike Pence is he's someone who I think has actually been quite influential on Republican Party policy, that he – a lot of different ideas that I cover as a reporter, there's actually like a touch of like Pence to them. So Planned Parenthood is a perfect example. He has kind of been like leading the charge to like really revamp Medicaid in very specific ways. Like Indiana is the only state where everyone has to pay a premium. Like you have no income, you still pay a $1 premium for some of your Medicaid benefits. Now you have like a half dozen other states trying to copy this approach. Like he is someone who, you know, has has like a clear theory of what he wants to change policy-wise and has been like pretty decently successful at getting traction with those ideas. Like he, you know, with Planned Parenthood, with Medicaid, there's probably other examples I'm missing from other areas of domestic policy. He has kind of been a pioneer on a lot of conservative policy areas, having other people follow him. So I kind of see him as someone whose like name doesn't come up a ton. And like you said, he's like not very popular right now, but someone who is really put out ideas that other Republicans have liked and gravitated to. And now you have kind of this like really bizarre scenario where, you know, he doesn't really get to talk in the 60 Minutes interview. Um, There's an kind of insane report in The New York Times today about the Trump campaign's um, vice presidential vetting process um, where one Kasich advisor was said that, you know, the Trump campaign asked whether, 
you know, he would like to be the most powerful vice president and would be in charge of domestic and foreign policy, leading to the question, what would Donald Trump be in charge of? It turns out that would be making America great again, um, was the actual answer from Trump, apparently. <laughs> um, but it, it it's hard to tell from the outside right now, like, what this relationship would be because on the you know and, and maybe this is just something you say to your vice presidential candidates like you always tell them like of course you're going to have a big portfolio you'll get to do x y and z and you'll get to defund planned parenthood and do these things you want to do and then you see their relationship on display in 60 uh, in the 60 minutes interview um in those sort of in the introduction speech which again like focused very on trump um so it's it's kind of hard to think through right now like he is someone who is like very bona fide conservative credentials, ideas that conservatives like, where if he serves as vice president, like where all these ideas he's had that have kind of shored him up these credentials, like where they where they go. It's also, I mean, it's noteworthy because not only was this like John Kasich can run domestic and foreign <laughs> policy. I mean, that's a weird thing to say. Um, but also if you were from a thousand feet, John Kasich and, and Mike Pence kind of seem like similar, like low-key Midwestern governor guys. But in terms of like where they exist in the Republican Party firmament, um, Kasich is a guy who like was a like Gingrich revolution rebel who assumed a position of responsibility and power in the congressional caucus uh, early, mellowed, I think, a little bit as a consequence of the impeachment madness, then, you know, kind of later had this career revival as governor of Ohio, in which after getting a, a little bit burned in the very earliest heady Tea Party days, has operated as a relatively moderate governor, has become super popular in his home state, ran a little bit like bizarrely to the left in, in the Republican primary. And Trump was like, sure, you can just be in charge of all policy. And Mike Pence <laughs> has been on the total opposite trajectory the whole time, um, which may just reflect that Donald Trump doesn't care about these kinds of things, like doesn't think at all about these distances. I mean, I think it, it just generally indicates that like Trump is trying to get elected president and is like coming up with a lot of somewhat improvisational like ideas to throw out there. I don't know what the exact context of this moment was when Trump felt that he could really, really, really needed John Kasich's support. You know, I think every vice president is probably told they'll be the most influential vice president ever. But when you make a promise like that, that like has an inherent lack of credibility, I think you need to try to make it seem credible. You don't want to put it like so far over the like, I'll just let you run the whole government. <laughs> that just sounds like you're being bullshit, right? Instead of something like, I'm going to have a group of like nine who meet together every Tuesday. That's like the inner cabinet. And I want you on that right. team. Or right? you'll like, be in charge of like X policy push, not like literally all right, the like policy. You'll run tax policy. Or like, I, yeah, like I know I don't know these guys on Capitol Hill and we're going to need to work with them. And I want to make X a priority, which I know isn't Paul Ryan's priority. And I want you to like take right. the, like that makes yeah. sense, right? Not just like oh, you'll run everything. <laughs> well, Mike Pence's speech tonight will be fascinating. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it will be it will be a glorious moment um, when our when our past and our futures converge. <laughs> we'll make those our, of you, the weeds audience. Just to be clear, so we if we need to go through the time again. I mean, we could. <laughs> I think actually, the time and space are going to collapse upon themselves into a Mike Pence singularity, and we may never actually reach Trump's speech on Thursday. What a world! 
This has been another episode of The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply podcast. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Uh, thank you to my colleagues, and we will see you next week if we have not all collapsed into the time-space singularity that Matt mentioned. Yes, good singularity. Fingers crossed. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>